Hey, my name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. This is the entirety of an open office hour I did, which uh, typically is like an open Q&A, but has turned into more of a discussion-based kind of thing as long as you know a small group of people there. It's not therapy. It is not clinical consultation. It's really just question and answer slash discussion. There's three other people there with me, Sandra, who is a super fan slash nanny. And then there's also uh, Reese. They are, I think, an admin for a nonprofit uh, near Portland. And then also uh, Joseph. He is a teacher also near Portland, I believe. So I hope you enjoy this. We cover a lot of stuff. We cover a little bit of the, of the Will Smith Oscar thing. We cover um, timeouts. We cover shame, what it is. We cover some or speculate on evolution. There's kind of like a whole bunch of stuff that we go into. I think it's a pretty fun, free-flowing conversation. Basically, we, we cover a whole lot. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, so um, I came across um, something that was talking about the difference between calming and regulating. In the class, in the part of uh, safety anchors, so you talk about, you know, using... Um, you know, some kind of visualization or something that's not a memory, but a, a creation. So I have one of those that, that I use. I have several cool. things that I use. I guess my question is, so how do you differentiate the difference between using these kinds of safety anchors? Um, you talk about, you know, regulation and you talk about calm. So I'm trying to kind of separate them yeah. right now. I don't know if I've ever explicitly done so. I, th- I think maybe I haven't. It really, so whoever said that, it really depends on like what do they mean by calm and by regulation. So for me, when I say calm, I'm looking at um, it could be a behavioral thing where we have physically we sort of exude calmness, not lethargy where we're like worn out and like bleh, but calm where we have like right now I'm calm. I do have energy, but I would say I'm calm. I'm not fully relaxed. I'm not like in solitude at peace meditating. But I would say I'm calm, right? So physically, behaviorally, in my voice even, I have enough vocal prosody. I don't think I have enough. I don't think I have a lot usually, but it's it's there. So I would say eh, I'm in a state of calm. I would say this is calm-ish. But when we say regulation, to me, I would think of what's the state of my autonomic nervous system. So even though I kind of exude and feel and behave calm, Am I truly in a ventral vagal state? Does that make sense? I I mean, I feel like I am, but I also do, whenever I do these things, I do have some more flight kind of activation. I do have more of my, a little bit of anxiety in my system. So I'm behaviorally calm. Inwards, I feel mostly calm, but I do feel like a little bit of like something right here, like a little bit of energy in my system at the same time, which I wouldn't call calm. (laughs) So it kind of depends on what we mean by the word. I, I, I would say what it means to me is if you're in, a ventral vagal state of safety and social engagement. So if you're regulated, if you're anchored enough in your safety state, then uh, the behavior and the, the behavior that will follow will be stillness uh, or being able to be still, you know, like, like we're all doing right now. The feeling that will follow the regulation would be, could be calm. It could also be, if you're in a ventral vagal state of safety, it could be playful. It could be, uh, happy. It could be joyful. It could be relaxed. It could be a bunch of things. And I would say calm could be one of the thing, the one of the feelings or behaviors that follow 
a well-regulated state where you're anchored in your ventral vagal state of safety. So that was a lot. Does that clear things up on or, or help at all? Or is it more confusing? Um, I'm trying to connect like with the, the sensation of the difference between calm and regulation. I would say that calm is the sensation of being regulated. So being regulated is not a feeling. We're talking about your autonomic nervous system. Being regulated means that your safe and social pathways, the ventral vagal, the safe and social pathways, that those are activated enough for you to be able to socially engage, to cope, to ground yourself, to feel in the present moment enough. It doesn't have to be 100%. Mm-hmm. So regulation is we're talking about the autonomic nervous system. We're talking about biology. If you're regulated, then it's like one causes the other. If you're regulated, then you feel calm. That's that's how I would conceptualize it. So And so or you, you could talked about calm. the behavior. So what is it when you're like activated inside, but your behavior comes? Because people with chronic, yeah. acti- uh, you know, chronically activated, right? They, they still yeah. feel that. But the behavior, yeah. I do it all the time. The behavior appears calm, but I could be like freaking chaos on the inside. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. I have my thoughts on that. Let me bring in uh, Reese or Joseph. Do either of you have anything you want to input here? That's a great question. I think it's, I love differentiating these things. So yeah, please, Joseph, you look at a smile on your face. What, What do you got? Yeah, as a teacher, you know, we have to do that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, teenagers who I, I think, you know, I, are if you listen to Justin's podcast, I think we have really similar um, group of, uh, group of kiddos, um, and so you know I, I kind of have to realize that I'm the safest. It's probably I'm the safest room that yep. they have anywhere to go to. You know, when they're coming into my room, like they do with breakups or whatever identity issues or you know mandated reporter stuff. You know, um, but yeah, it's it, it, it's a challenge. It's practice. I think for me, I'm um, I'm a survivor of uh, a lot of abuse and a lot of neglect. I grew up homeless, so you know mm-hmm. I'm able to. <laughs> I had to do that just my whole life, just being in in like a shock mm-hmm. state, um, like ventral. What is it? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm new to it to the point. Right. But we uh, like amygdala hijack. You know the mm-hmm. fight, uh, flight, yeah. and fight, uh, flight and fight. Yeah. Yeah. So like I live in that, like, oh, that's my normal state. And so it, it sort of like tears. My, I don't have the answer. All I know is it hurts and it's leaving heart <laughs> problems and it's like tearing my nerves yeah. up. Um, I, th- well, yeah, I think I, what you're, you were saying, though, is like you can identify with being activated, but having to present a certain way. Yeah, that's, I, yeah then, for sure. And that for me, it was when I was younger, it was survival. And I think professionally, it's also survival at this point. Also, you know, like yeah. you can't. And you have 40 kids in there and they come from hell, frankly. 40? Um, oh, yeah, 40, 41. Yeah, we'll, we'll wow. talk later when we're not recording. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you, know, you and I want to have a teacher blow up, uh, blow up steam session. <laughs> but, yeah, like that's the thing. And there's a pandemic, you know, like yeah. so like nobody feels safe. And I would pull them. In, I would pull them at the beginning of the class. Like, how do you feel coming in? Because they're so afraid to talk to each other about it. Because that no one knows what anyone's thinking when they're teenagers. Because who the hell knows anything, right? Yeah. Um, but you, I would pull them. Like, how are you feeling? Like, how's your stress level today? And it would always be throughout this whole year, like eight to ten on a scale of one to ten. And by the end of class, you know, and that would inform my practice 
as a professional of like, okay, cool. Now I have that data and I know how to code switch for them. But I have that because I'm 43 and I've been through grad school and yada, yada. Um, if I hadn't, I don't think I'd be able to survive in this job. It's, yeah, it's for It sucks that you have to do that, but I think, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Reese, what do you got? Um, nothing brilliant. <laughs> I, I like what you said. Um, I, I, I guess what it makes me think about is I'm, I'm really convinced that there's maybe like, when we talk about um, windows of tolerance, that there's overlaps. Like I've never heard anybody say anything about an overlap or really seen a graph, mm. but in my mind, I think they must. They must have an overlap or a gray area where you can be activated and behaving in a calm way. And I actually, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time dreaming of things that are not real, but like, like couldn't that be, have evolved to be real? Like, um, like could, couldn't it have like an adaptive quality to be able to like basically lie? Like <laughs> the first humans that could fake feeling safe, like as a, as a, as a person assigned female at birth, I can mm. tell you that faking liking somebody can save your life. Interesting. If you can act like you like somebody, you can avoid a lot of pain, physical pain, immediate pain, right? So that's like, that's instinctive. Like when I, I feel like when I defer to authority, that's like some root part of me that's doing that. Like the lizard reptile version. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Uh, safety, like. Sorry. Oh, I, I completely that, right? agree. <laughs> I, I think that we do have, and tell me if this is kind of what you're alluding to, I do think that we have something within us that naturally acquiesces to power. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the thing that shook me the most, um, not the most, but there was the whole Will Smith thing, right? If you haven't heard about it. <laughs> so there was that... <laughs> Un, just unbelievable thing right with will smith and chris rock and i was looking at everybody in the audience and everyone was just kind of like going along with it they were there i don't know if they were confused but like no one spoke up no one said oh that wasn't right even chris rock had to kind of acquiesce right he will smith made himself the most powerful person in that room he kind of already was personal personality wise financially wise reach wise influencer wise but he dominated that room and he made himself the most powerful person in the room right and everyone else just like fell in line even though I'm sure they were they were worked up and active, right? So could that be some kind of like very old survival instinct of like, oh, everything's fine. I'm just here. No problems. <laughs> Don't pay attention to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that kind of what you're alluding to, Reese? Well, I think there's some, I mean, I was a psych major in like the 80s and there's studies that show that, that that's what we do. Absolutely. Yeah. Is, is it, we're social behavior, like we're social animals. Yeah. We just you know follow it, the it, leader it, when you have oh, like yeah. that study where they had a person who was like apparently injured on the ground and people would just walk over them they would do it more if they could see other people walking over them but if it was a, just them they would more likely to go help so right. that you know we we take so many cues from the people around us True. i actually use that to my advantage that's one of my like it's not like a safety cue exactly but if i'm feeling super activated and i'm a room of people who aren't like mm -hmm. one of my checks is i check everybody's face and like i try mm -hmm. to decide if it's just me or if this is a you know or are we all freaking out like i make totally. myself look i think dude i think that's that's a very that's co-regulation like you're accepting you're mindfully mm -hmm. accepting co-regulation i do the same thing when i do presentations 
I have to see people's faces. And if I don't, I, I notice I'm way more like when I saw teachers doing the whole, you know, Zoom thing with the, with the black screens, I stepped into one of the I stepped into one of those classrooms and like was instantly like, this is horrible. You can't see their faces like you're doing this for six hours a day. How are you staying sane? Like I couldn't take this I, for five minutes. I did like a presentation about my service to the kids. I couldn't take it. It was dead quiet. It was it was eerie, you know. So when I do uh, zooms now, like right here, or, or you know, if I do the political one on one, I did that, or at work, I tell people I need to see your faces. Like I don't pressure them, but I'm like, hey, it would mean a lot. There's a reason for it. I'll talk about it later on code regulation. Uh, but if you could turn your cameras on, that would mean a lot to me. It makes such a big difference seeing people's faces, right? Like what you said, I'm totally with you, Reese. Yeah, thank you, Justin. Thank you, Reese. It was really. It's an observation I think of a lot, and it was interesting to hear your perspective on that. I thought of, if we're going back to psych, facial recognition yeah. hypothesis, um, and how one thing I'm really interested in right now is how technology is kind of making us do things we didn't, we're not really wired to do. Like with the Will Smith thing last night, and I think about this with teenagers in general, with Instagram and the effect it has on people's self-image, mm. that we are not made to be seen by millions of people all the time no. and everyone in that room at the oscars knew like at that moment like something unprecedented is happening we don't know if it's a joke or not and at that point they're processing a gazillion times an hour what kind of face do i make how am i going to get me right agent going to say and so they have to think i mean will smith i mean that'll that's the thing about that will never that'll always be there like he'll never be able to undo that moment right. it'll always be there for him and i imagine it'll be a trigger for him and his family and probably for chris and a bunch of other people in there um yeah. but gosh we have to think all the time like you said oh you're recording a thing you know i gotta make sure i'm not like smoking a bong on camera or something you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah don't do that <laughs> but you know what i'm saying like because we know that there are social norms and we don't want to be seen as in as a pariah and i think in that moment right. no one quite knew because it was unprecedented with the, the impact of the tech as well i i'm curious about that justin if you think uh, there's any anything to that with the the technology and the stress that we put on our faces now all the time well hold on to that one that, 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 that's an interesting question i want to make sure we an answer uh sandra's question though so when it comes to you know like i'm i'm activated but i'm presenting as if i'm not like that let's get back to that right so in my mind i don't know to me that means i don't on a biological level i, I will just speculate to me that means there's enough of the safety state active in order to do what i'll just call self-control that's not really self-regulation i wouldn't that's just kind of like white knuckling it like you know what i mean uh i wouldn't call that self-regulation self-regulation would be i feel dysregulated I feel more flight fight energy and then I can work my way up my polyvagal ladder up into my safety state and actually feel feelings of calm. Like I would call that self-regulation, but if you're, if we're activated, if we're having a panic attack or something like that, and we're just kind of getting through it, maybe self-control might be the best word for that, but it's, I wouldn't call that self-regulation. I, mean, I would say self-control is better than nothing depending on what it is. Yeah, I like self-control because for for those who are in a chronic stress state, uh, I'm just going to speak for myself. I may I may touch 
the um, the safe, safety social state. I may touch it, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking down <laughs> all the time. Like I have eyes in the back of my head because yeah. something's ha- something's going to happen just because that's that chronic state that I'm in, right? So so I've learned to behave in a particular way, even though. I'm, I'm always looking down the ladder. I'm always looking to see what's going to happen next. I think to, to me, that's a whole other concept, which t- t- connects, but uh, that to me, that, that speaks to when we do get to safety, like we truly do get to the top of our ladder. It might just be like a little glimpse or a glimmer. Deb Dana calls it a glimmer. Like it's just a moment, but all of a sudden things might feel like different. And with the, with the, my clients, especially the students I work with, like they have those moments where they're connecting and smiling and all of a sudden making eye contact, but it feels weird. It just feels uncomfortable. It feels too, it feels like vulnerability. It's vulnerability, but to them that's, that's not experienced as this, um, safe vulnerability. It's, it's probably more experiences like exposure or uh, unsafe exposure. If that makes sense. What about contrived? What do you mean? Well, I mean, like you learn how to present a certain right. way right even though you may be feeling something else you so it's not really the two aren't together they're separate you're you're forcing the appearance of safe and social i got you yeah you're, you're it's not real like it's not it's not truly a reflection of your safe and social state it's an adaption adaptation to maybe getting a need met for some people I think other people who are who are in a truly dysregulated state can do uh, whether you call it contrived or fake. I think they can use, I think they can use um, a pseudo safety state or a faux safety state in order to get their selfish needs met to manipulate others, and that does not come from an empathetic safety state. That comes from probably more of a dysregulated. I would I would assume more of a fight state or a rageful like freeze kind of thing. Uh, I don't, so I think that the way that we fake it, if we can just call it that, the way that we adapt and how we present ourselves can maybe, maybe lump it into two groups of like, I'm getting my needs met and I have to survive or I'm getting my selfish wants met and I'm exploiting others. And I think those two people oftentimes find each other, unfortunately. Reese, you got a smile. What's going on? Is he describing my marriage? Yes. <laughs> like, but before that, if you had stopped like one sentence before that, I would have said, is he describing narcissism and codependency? Yes. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. Yep. Yeah. I would totally say that's it. Yeah. All right. I had three thoughts. Okay. I'll go quickly. Sandra, I yes. think maybe one of you guys know, um, have you heard of masking in the context of um, mm. neurodivergent autism spectrum? people masking their symptoms and ADHD perhaps in adults. There's a whole, I, I have the impression cause I speak to somebody, a couple of people who are like diagnosed with ADD in adulthood and are looking back over their lives and realizing the extent of the masking they were doing to fit in, mm. um, which would be survival, right? That would be adaptive. That would be you know, a way to find a, a path to co-regulation, right? As you would mask your things that didn't be, yeah. reward you with co-regulation. 
we're talking about the same kind of thing. Maybe yeah. it's the same thing. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. You could, you might find some helpful like forums and stuff on masking. Yeah, I'm taking notes. undoing it exact. Like, what is it? Like, how did, how do we pick it apart? How do we attack this problem that's trying to save me and I'm ready for it to stop? Okay. You, had, you said you had three thoughts, right? Hey, I'm going to interrupt this real quick just to let you know that I do have two courses available. One of them is Building Safety Anchors, and the other one is Polyvagal 101. If you want to be a part of these open office hours, you have to be uh, a student in Building Safety Anchors or Polyvagal 101. When you buy one of the courses, you get, well, you get the course itself, but you also get access to uh, spending an hour with me once a month and ask general questions and engage in some discussion. I think it's a pretty good time and it's uh, it gets me to flex the way I think and hopefully just kind of spurs discussion with people that are just, just like you're listening to right now. Go to justinlmft.com if you are interested in taking one of my courses. Polyvagal 101 is really the fundamentals of the polyvagal theory, something that's very academic, very complex, but I can take that difficult information and put it so that it's clear easy to understand, well-structured, and then building safety anchors is, well, it's really a a course for people to become more grounded in the present moment, to activate more safety in their system. It's not really a trauma healing kind of thing. Before we can do any sort of trauma healing, really we have to have the capacity to be in our safety state first. So this is like the foundational groundwork that is so important when it comes to being able to be successful in trauma healing or in therapy. Like it's really foundational stuff that I think is extremely important and often neglected. So that's Building Safety Anchors. And there's also Polyvagal 101. Both of those are on justinlmft.com. And that, well, this one's small, but I think when people are vulnerable, what we, what we mean is that it's like our nervous system, we recognize we need help. We need co-regulation and it's reaching out. Mm-hmm. And in the reaching out, now we've dropped our mask that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. And so that's that vulnerable moment where we, in order to, to receive the co-regulation, we sort of have to like let the other nervous system know I'm ready for an attachment moment and we could be shunned. And that's mm-hmm. like a, yeah. that I think that word that describes that is vulnerable. Love it. And then co-regulation like fixes everything. <laughs> I think it's a big piece of it. Reese, I'm gonna have to start disinviting you because you're showing me up here with your brilliant answers. My goodness, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I, I have Just like inviting a, her. <laughs> Never. It's, it's, I have an obsessive interest in things. It's um. No, you laid it out beautifully. That, I, I love that. I'm gonna. That's definitely podcast worthy right there. Yeah. <laughs> Who has a cat? Oh me. She's asking me oh, to okay. go go down on the floor and pet her. All right, uh, Joseph. Anything you want to add, or do you, do you? Or actually, first off, Sandra. Actually, no, yeah, Joseph, good. anything anything you want to add to this, Joseph? Well, yeah, thank you, Reese, for sharing. Uh, I think a lot about that when I think about identity as well. Um, and um, I grew up in, um, in a family that was, I guess I will just say, inv- involved in organized crime very heavily in, in New York. Um, and that was the norm. I, you know, it, it's always, you know, you could say fake it till you make it. I think, you know, mm. these are all social constructs of how to be normal in Western American society, right? 
and so yeah things like being you know like i go to trainings i'm sure some of you do too where you're like oh we want you to be your authentic self and love yourself at this job and like the moment you do they're like but no not like that (laughs) that's a lie (laughs) right so like there's i think just the positive part of you (laughs) i know like nobody wants to deal with the negative right It's, it's a very I don't know. I lived abroad for years, so I, I became really fascinated with how terrified Americans are of their own feelings. Mm. Honestly, <laughs> um, yeah. But to show strength and to show resolve, and you know, there probably is. You know, Justin, maybe you have more in the evolutionary psych end of that, like something evolutionarily to that. You mm. know, um, to keep it going, to to fake it till you make it, as as they say, and you know, some some mammals uh, camouflage their skin. You know, um, I think mm. we can we camouflage our our feelings and personalities and we pay the people lots of money to do that in, on our screens every day for us too. So yeah. 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 I, I think we're having a little bit of an identity crisis as a society with tech, but you know, this- that kind of transitions us to your, the topic you brought up. Uh, what's all this screen time stuff doing to us, right? Well, in the way that we, pers- one of the things I noticed working with teens specifically, and then I go back to when I was a teenager as well. You probably do. So it's, it's hard not to, you know, when yeah. you're getting all that secondary trauma, you know, um, is how terrified they are of being seen generally, um, just being seen. And I have social anxiety disorder. It's fine. I'm, I'm comfortable with it, you know, um, but it's, it's hard, you know, um, I do wonder if, you know, I saw the Facebook papers and the Wall Street Journal reports on Instagram and the way that it made specifically teenage girls really like feel like hurting themselves. Um, mm. I, you know, I would I pulled my students and it was about 35 percent of the girls and about eight percent of the men. Um, it happens a little bit on the male side, too. I have it. it, it it's, but it is a weird thing. Mm. I, the way that we're seen, we're not, you know, nobody wants to go in front of a room and talk. Um, but with the phones, it just makes it like a, it's like a weapon at this point. It's very it, I, I'm not sure what it's doing. I don't know what it's doing to us, to our brains, but I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's great. <laughs> I'm a little wary of it. All. No, uh, I think generally it's, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure to make of it either. I think a lot of it's been disastrous. Can I actually, I'm sorry, yeah. Justin, I just wanted to, it's, um, there's such a, such a, hmm, such a fear of it's, oh, trust, lack of trust. My students say this all the time. I can't trust that if I say a thing that it's not going to get posted everywhere. No. Yeah. And that's kind of what I wanted to get to is, is are we losing yeah. trust in each other? So I'm in the infant and toddler mental health program at Portland State right now. And I know it's so cool. The attachment, right? If you go back to like your early, it's like Psych 101, you like breeze past attachment, but it's like a big deal. And um, the it's very primal when think about it when you're an infant you're just so helpless and vulnerable right and all of your skills are just like crying for help and hoping for the best and they if they come and they regulate and they're they're consistent enough then you sort of have your act together and you can grow up and be a person but if if that's not there or if it's inconsistent like we will do anything to be attached to that caregiver because to not be attached is death and that that's very primitive and shame so from Brene Brown, shame is the fear of disconnection. Hmm. She summarized it like that. So shame is the basically the instinctive, what we call the instinctive feeling of being afraid of being disconnected, which equals death. Like there's no two ways about it, like at our, at our nervous system level. Hmm. So yes, what social media does, it, it opens us up to 
like everybody who can see it could possibly shame you. And that we're not wired for that. We're wired for a few people to know us well and protect us from right. threats. You know, using shame for things like we don't smear poop on the walls, you know, or you know, we you don't date your sister. There's a few, there's a very few like cross-cultural taboos. I, it's it's important the definitions because I, I definitely would not the way she's if if you're accurately describing what she says about shame, to me that's just a fear of rejection and aloneness. So for me, shame is something I, I would say it's experienced. I'm sure it could be connected, but I, to me, I, I've conceptualized it a different way. So I think it's important that the definitions that we're using are the same, you know. But for me, shame is more about I feel maybe maybe they connect. I feel gross. I feel not just gross. I feel bad. I feel wrong. I feel defective. Uh, it, probably down here is very like a dorsal vagal kind of thing. I think. I think shame is oftentimes connected to disgust. And I think the way you're describing it seems to live on its own, probably connected, but I think it could live on its own as rejection, isolation, and uh, aloneness. You know, I, I feel like that that's kind of that fear of disconnection or that fear of rejection. I would I would say it's different than shame, often connected, but I, I would separate those two, you know? I'm not saying I have the right answer. I'm just putting my thoughts out there. I, I don't know if I have the right answer. You've talked about this, Justin. It's interesting shame, yeah. listening to shame and guilt. <clears throat> so I've just been trying to catch up on it. Um, and you had said something really interesting, which was sort of the social value of shame. Yeah. You recall that? Yeah. I found that really insightful. I had never thought of it that way. And Reese, there was something Reese just said that like that reminded me of that. Oh, did you say don't put, don't smear poop on the walls? <laughs> don't have relations with your... Uh, siblings or cousins or any family members uh yeah i think that there is i hate to call it this i don't know what else to call it i don't want to say healthy shame that doesn't fit right functional shame social shame i i do think that there is i think healthy shame i hate calling it that reese but yeah you have to listen to Brene brown she's the expert okay i think irene lyon i I'd interviewed irene lyon a long time ago and she called it healthy shame as well I just, it feels icky, but I get it. I get it. I get it. Right. So I have a hard time listening to Brene, Brene Brown, her storytelling. It's like, oh my God, get to the point. I need it to go faster. <laughs> I have a really hard time with her storytelling. It's just, she had this story about her and her husband, like in a river. And I, I forget the context of it, but I was like, oh my God, get to the point. And it's, I have a hard time listening to her. Otherwise I would probably take in more Brene Brown. Maybe I'll give it a try again. Just the one what that's the just the one. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I think there is, there is a social function. There, to, there is some like type of like healthy shame. If, if there's a look, I mean, just to be blatant, if there's a pedophile in the room, I want to know so I can reject that person. I think there's a, there's a function to that. Uh, I think there, there kind of is a function of having these like lists of sexual offenders. It's icky. It feels gross. Uh, I know it destroys their life entirely. So it's like, Maybe, I don't know if it's too far, but it does serve a purpose for us. I want to know. I, before we moved, I checked the, our, my neighborhood. I have kids. I want to know who's a room. You know, like there is a role. It's, it's, it's an alert. Shaming people is kind of an alert as long as it's used in a healthy way. And that's not the right, in a functional way. You know what I mean? So just the, in general, that's kind of where I'm coming from. I think that the shame can serve a function of Hey, you messed up so bad, you can no longer be a part of our system, our society, our family, whatever it is. Like, you're out. And that, in a well-regulated person, <laughs> could be an impulse or a 
enough of a uh, 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 consequence maybe to be like, oh, I better snap out of it and make better some better choices here. I better make amends. I better give people you know plenty of space until I can do better. I and mean, I'm talking very generally. There are probably some things that are unforgivable. I think there definitely are. But in general, that's kind of how I understand a potential function of shame is that the society says, whoa, you have gone beyond our norms. Get out. Go away. You're horrible. And it's like that's kind of the extent of it. Now, continued shame and throwing rocks at people <laughs> and bullying them online, not, not like that's like I think where it becomes we're inflicting our own shame onto other people. And that that's that feels like something else. But if well-regulated people, people who are in their own who can connect with each other, have empathy, can say, like, your behavior is intolerable, we are not okay with it, you have to go. That is shame. That is rejection, that is isolation. I would say that that is probably more maybe what Brene Brown's talking about, or like a fear of that. And I think that's a very I think there is I think there is like a biological experience of that. Like we feel that, right? If someone shames us, if someone rejects us, we feel that. And I think in a very deep way. From the infant's perspective, that is a very oh, yeah. real thing. And and when oh, our yeah. brains were developing, that's what we knew. That was our world. So right. our brains are founded on this premise. And that, that and that works in little tribes and families. I think that there's a pretty simple role to that. Like, hey, kick rocks. You don't belong in our tribe anymore. And then that person has to go isolate and live on their own or find another tribe that's more accepting. I don't know. So I, I think that there is a kind of a role. But that's a heck of a lot different than what people are doing online, harassing each other, making fake accounts on Instagram to like spy on each other. Like it's just sick. It's, I'm sorry, I'm being judgmental here, but like, yeah, it's just, that's beyond the pale. That is like, no, that's, that's just your own stuff. That's your own shame that now you're inflicting upon someone else who may not deserve that. And now you're leaving them with the, with, with the shame that doesn't belong to them, but now they've taken it on and they might pass it on to someone else or onto themselves, harm somebody else, harm some, harm themselves. So I think there is a function to shame from people who can say, give that, you know, <laughs> and hopefully the other person can receive it, learn the lesson and do something different. I don't know how, how, I don't know if that's realistic. I think it can be. I think if people have gone to prison and said, and snapped out of it and said, I, I got to make amends, I got to do something different. I got to change my life around. So that, to me, that seems like as a society, we're saying you don't belong here. You have to go over there. And I don't think it works most of the time, but I think that's in an ideal world. That is the function of, or an ideal, in the ideal idea of prison. I think that's the idea of it. I don't think it works that way. I don't think it will work that way very often, but every now and then you hear about someone who's like, wow, that I took, it took that for me to snap out of it and start, you know, repurposing my life in another direction. So uh, those are my thoughts on shame there. I'm, I'm happy to hear from anybody else. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So I feel like humans have always done this, right? We've always used this shaming technique. And I think we also use it, um, we twist it and we use it, it's kind of used to keep up, like maintain power structures. Yeah. It's used against, you know, black racism. It's, you know, transphobia. Um, everything the witches of salem right everything yep the, and the last thought was and this is why i we're coming to understand that using timeouts as punishment is sort mm. of problematic it can be it can be right it can be but i'll be honest i've used timeout it's pretty rare only use timeouts like 
It was rare-ish. It kind of depends on what we mean by timeout. And when I do parenting groups, this has to be cleared up because for me, timeout is very concrete. There's a structure to it. There's very clear boundaries that if you like serious, like zero tolerance behaviors that like, yeah, if you did, if you acted like this to your friends, they will reject you. They will say, you cannot be a part of us anymore. Get out like that. That is a, to me, that's a natural consequence in the real world. So if my six-year-old son hits somebody, like you're going to get a timeout because in the real world, I hope you have friends who will say, get lost. I hope you have friends who will not put up with that. That's where I come from. To me, a healthy friend is, is going to be like, yo, that's way beyond. You, you cannot hang out with us right now. You cannot hit us. <laughs> you cannot curse at us. You cannot treat us like this. That is not a part of our friendship. I want my kids to have friends like that. And so if they were to hit, if they were to do anything that's like a zero tolerance behavior that my wife and I agree on, that would result in timeout for my daughter. She's older. So that would be like a grounding or something like that. But it's not like that's different than saying, like, I've heard, you know, parents that make like they're just like torture. They, they put their kids in like a, a dark closet. That's not timeout. That's torture. Or they'll like make their I've heard of parents making their kids kneel on dry rice. That's abuse. That's torture. That, they, but they call it timeout. That's not timeout. I've had parents who put their kids on timeout and say, you're done when I tell you to. And the whole time there's shaming and humiliating the kid. That's not timeout. So timeout to me has a very specific structure. If there's a time to it, it is not unending. Shame is not a part of it. But yeah, there, there is a piece of rejection in there. There is. And I think that as social beings, that I, I don't see a huge issue with that as long as we're using it appropriately. I don't. And then afterwards, there's a repair. There's a reattachment. There's a, I love you. I expect the best out of you. Let's talk about the structure again. Let's problem solve. I don't see, to me, that I don't see the issue there with with a with that kind of basic idea yeah and in, and in timeout so now i think they call it a, a time in rather than a timeout um yeah. but in a timeout it can be about rejection but not about abandonment yeah that's, that's a heck of a lot different it's very different it's like you it's gives the child a time to sit down and breathe and and just take a minute to just be by themselves and be still. Um, but for, even when I take care, you know, for me, the older kids are five-year-old kids. So when I take care of the five-year-old kids and we need to have a, a time to ourselves, that's how I put it. We have, it's, it looks like you need a time to yourself, some time to yourself. And um, so they may be they may be sitting in the couch or they may be sitting in the chair away from me but i'm always someplace where they can be where I, they can see me i don't talk to them i don't engage them depending on the child i put a clock on and then i go mm -hmm. back and then we talk about you know and and restructure and how we how are you going to do this differently next time and, and like that the the and in that there's there's no shame but there's some rejection for sure but really on a very low level but just a, a a knowledge like they need to get that that kind of behavior isn't acceptable right in the situation and so how are you going to do it differently next time and that's what learning is well, that's discipline, right? So discipline, the, the definition of discipline is to teach, mm. right? It's like learning how to behave, you know? 
Yeah. 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 Sorry. I have a five-year-old, so I was thinking mm -hmm. a lot about that. Um, and she's in kindergarten here in Portland. So what up, Reese? Yeah, Portland. Um, and she <laughs> learned, she's in a kindergarten school, public school, wonderful. And like within the first two weeks, she was like teaching me how to deescalate. Like they're <laughs> like her teacher is like really like an expert in social emotional learning. So oh, cool. I, you know, she's helping me relax because I, I, I realized lately I literally never learned how to relax. <laughs> um, so she's teaching me now. It's very sweet. That's mm. awesome. You know, um, Super so, cool. yeah. I, so, you know, I have a little bit of hope for the future. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I did want to just piggyback off that for a quick question, Justin, because we're, we're talking about um, the young folks. Um, the restorative piece is very challenging for um, older folks. Uh, is that, and you know, I don't want to get into the politics of it, but yeah. um, it is, it seems very challenging um, to, I, I guess like there's so much of a stigma, right? Like you've done a bad thing, you're mm. ostracized. I, I don't want to have a conversation about cancel culture, but you know what I'm saying. It's, it totally blends right. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. Like, and it's, it's, is it our inability as a society to actually like have nuance and discuss like how complex things are? Is it just easy to just say? Yeah, I, I would say sure. But then the next question is why? Why can we not sit with difficult, not di not just difficult ideas, but the discomfort that comes with difficult ideas? That I was working with a young person who had some flat out kind of hateful and judgmental ideas, things I don't agree with. But I knew, I knew that every time this person was talking about his ideas, he would get judged, he would get rejected, he would get shamed, he would get told, no, that's not the right way to think. It didn't help. Uh, just trying to correct his thoughts did not help. And so my approach was, let me, let me take him seriously. It doesn't mean I agree with him, but can I tolerate my own distress? Because it is distressing. Like, I think your idea, if I were to tell him, Actually, I think I did. I said, like, I don't agree with you. I think you and I do not agree. But what I want to do in, in our session is I want to give you an experience of not being judged. I want to give you an experience of being listened to, and we're going to discuss. And we might disagree, and I might try and ask questions, do the same thing with me. I want to give you, a, the, the idea was I want to give you a different experience. But I had to be able to sit with my discomfort of his ideas, which I, I would judge and say, no, that's stupid. I didn't say it out loud. But inside of me, I'm like, whoa. I, you could feel that friction of like, ooh, I, no. But can I stay with that that discomfort and then get to the nuance and then get to, oh, well, like, you know, maybe he has some decent questions or maybe the, the where he's coming from is not from judgment and hate. It definitely sounds like that. But, oh, there's more to it. And that's kind of what we got to was there's more going there's more going on. There's more that kind of rubs him wrong. And then he targets this group of like they're the problem. But it's like, no, no, that's not the problem. That's obviously not the problem. There is more to it, but you have to be able to sit with your own discomfort. And so to bring it back to the question of like a socially, why can't we just sit, why can't we sit with discomfort? And then like that, it's, it's, it's not just the ideas. The ideas bring discomfort. And then like, that's so intolerable for us now, a lot of us that we react instantly and it's shaming, it's judgment, it's rejection. And I get it. I'm, I'm, I have it within me too. And that kind of scares me that I could, I probably could. If something was triggering enough, I probably could get to that point where I was misbehaving and I don't want to be that person, you know? I think I have it within me. I think we all do. It's kind of scary. But yeah, why Why are we so <laughs> impulsive? Why, why has our, our feelings become so uncomfortable? And I don't know the answer to that. 
or maybe actually I would, I would say it always has been. I think we have, historically human beings have not been very good at somewhere along the lines we lost it, I think. I don't know where it is, but somewhere along the lines we lost our our natural ability to like connect with each other. And we've just kind of existed in this traumatized state for I don't know how long. This shame, shameful, traumatized state. We just keep inflicting it over and over, generation after generation, culture across, like constantly across the globe. I don't know where we. I don't know where where uh, where things got way off course. Reese, what's up? <laughs> Reese is smiling. No, the, the we have neuroplasticity. The brain will change. Yeah. It, it can change and adapt. That's you know, and, and sure. with new experience. And so, if if we, you know, it might take generations, right? But if we can, yeah. if you had a person who wasn't triggered all the time raising a baby, that baby would be better than any of us could do. And, and you know, not any one, but you know, you yeah. do it a thousand times, a million times. Right, 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 right. And you, you end up with a population that's better able to tolerate dysregulation. You know, maybe we achieved peak that, you know, sometime in the past. I don't know. I would assume so. Agree that the trauma has been passed down generation after generation. And, you know, you do your best as a parent, but I mean, there's things where the kids are misunderstanding and you didn't even know. And you find out when they're 15, <laughs> we, just, we just try our best and then we hope they can yeah. do their best, you know, and, and ideally we'd be there to help them. But I think the solution is more um, community-based like uh, interactions. You know, we need a community around us. We need to, you know, our housing system isn't really designed to support this, but we are creative. I mean, look what we did in a pandemic, create a community yeah. over microns yeah i think yeah, it's i agree I think we can get back into connection with each other somehow without spreading diseases you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah that'd be nice but, yeah but I, I think the beginning of the conversation i do mm. see, i think there is going to be a cohort of very dysregulated humans as a result of the pandemic yes i agree yeah what the heck is that going to look like i don't i don't know where um I, I wish I could pinpoint the moment in time where things really got beyond the basic functioning of an organism. Like, who was what was the first traumatized or- organism? You know, what was the first dysregulated organ? Like, at what point in time did that happen? You know, what, was it a human or was it something be- <laughs> before humanity, or was it like a couple hundred years into humanity? Like, at what point? I'm really curious. What tool was invented that made life? too easy and all of a sudden people had time to be like wait a minute i want more of this stuff or i want you to be less than me or what like there must have been a moment you know <laughs> what do you think are you asking literally because i can tell you <laughs> i literally want to know yeah well i literally want to know the moment so you know i'm i i look i guess i will say it from uh, what i will say is Look, the armchair Marxist lens, right? Okay. Um, which is about, I, I will, I mean, this is, yeah. a theory, these are social theories and theories of sociology and history. Um, about yeah. 6,000, it was about, you know, they go back to about 6,000 years ago was the evidence in uh, Mesopotamia right around um, Baghdad. Uh, the first time we've ever discovered um, the, the symbol for slavery. Mm. And the first people to ever be enslaved, as as far as we know, were women and children. Mm. And so the historians have sort of like figured out like what was going on at that point and what it was, was agricultural technology. And, yeah. you know, and it's like the, the minute that the moment that one per, one guy goes to another, walks on a plot of land and points down and says, this is mine. Like, right. it's been a shit show since then. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Sorry. 
I could I can kind of see that like once yeah once we started divvying up um, land yeah I, I could see that being part of it sure yeah it became a, a fight over resources generally you know with um, things so you know there were people yeah. in Nordic and everything and yeah. yeah there's a lot I could give you books I don't know you don't want a whole history lesson right now but no, yeah it's it's something I've actually been thinking recently what at what point why do humans I kind of, and I have a couple pieces of it why do human beings have thoughts in their in their brains right why do we have words and I, I there was some scientist I forget his name but he said it's because we have opposable thumbs and with opposable thumbs we can create tools and then we can use those tools to create other tools and that leads to being able to write things down you know retain not just retain memory but keep it for you know, to build on basically, and no other species or organism has the ability to do that. So opposable thumbs are a big part of that. You know, I, I would, from what I understand, I don't think anybody else or any other animals are going to be able to do that or species or whatever are going to be able to retain information and pass it on since they can't write it down. Right. So I would think that's part of it. But yeah, why do we have, why is it, at what point did words enter our, enter our mind? That's something I've been like, is that too abstract? Something I've been thinking about recently. I, it's so funny you say that, Justin, because I would ask, I would then ask you like, what do you mean by words? No, it would it'd be like sounds probably. It would it, it would be more than I would assume like grunts, <laughs> grunts of danger, screams of danger. It, it would be something beyond that, and I, I can't conceptualize what that would be. It probably wouldn't be the words that we have right now. It, it would be some other form of sound, I would assume, but I, I have no idea what that would be. But I, I would love to find that out. All right, uh, we have a couple more minutes. This has been a Really fascinating discussion. I really appreciate it. Sandra, anybody else? Do you, Any other thoughts, any questions that you have um, that we have to tie up? Uh, I just want to say thanks for coming in. I just signed up for the BSA course about two days ago. Awesome. Um, was referred to by my therapist, uh, who's oh, amazing. Right yeah, and now I'm like on the lookout for like polyvagal trained therapists who actually take insurance now. Um, but <laughs> Uh, yeah, so if you're wondering like who your audience is, it's, you know, I'm part of that. I, somebody nice. had said like your audience is like a 43-year-old white guy who's a little bit on the left and I fit that really too. Somebody said that about my audience? Yeah, it was on one of your podcasts. I would say 90% of my audience, and I know my Instagram followers are 90% women as far as uh, Instagram can tell me. That's the stats they give me. 90%. So I would assume that much more leftist leaning, uh, female dominated, probably more white. Uh, definitely from New York or LA. Those are my two. Uh, but I also, I'm, I'm always pleasantly surprised. I actually have a really good kind of like sampling. I think it's kind of cool. Every now and then I'll reach, you know, hear from someone and it's like, oh, from across the globe or what, like whatever it is. And that's oh, kind of cool, you know? But I think typically that's that's like my demographics, what they look like or identity pieces. I mean, every New Yorker and one of these days, I got to ask you about the eye contact thing. Mm. Because that was a whole thing of like you grow up in a whole culture in New York City where like you're taught from day one like never make it was in travel guides like never make eye contact with people. So when I moved to what? Portland, I was like, why are are people fucking with me? Does everyone want to <laughs> like people are so nice here in Portland and they look at you and I'm like, I always feel threatened by them even though I'm a grown ass man. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. I had this. I that. had the same problem because I'm I'm originally from Los Angeles and when I moved to Tennessee. And I was like, this is, something's not right. They talk to me. They ask me questions. And I'm like, and I started getting really suspicious. And when I realized they were just, it was just small talk. 
Like I literally had to learn how to small talk. So I went to the small, I lived in a small town. So I went to the businesses to introduce myself because in a small town, everybody knows everybody. Mm. And everybody knew that I was moving into town before I even moved into town. It was the craziest (laughs) thing. And so I had to literally learn how to small talk. And so I totally, I get it. That, that was a, a real learning curve for me when it came to um, being around people. My, my wife has always said she's from Seattle. She said, you're all psychotic in New York. You know, like, exactly. Yeah. My family. She says to me, you don't have social anxiety disorder. You were just raised by psychopaths. <laughs> and that's, it's been a lot for me, but it does go back to like, you know, some people are just raised to not trust. We're always hypervigilant. And I, I, that's yeah. my experience as a, somebody growing up poor in New York. And, you know, LA is a similar, I love LA because I can, I know the vibe. Like I know how to do it. Mm. You know, there's yeah. some workers out there now. Like people would drive past each other and they'd wave and they don't even know each other. You know, they'd wave like, oh, okay, well, this is different. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so I started waving. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. You're you're so famous now. You have to account for all my time zone shifts. So, you know, you're Polly Bagel Man. Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, it's got a label now. (laughs) My wife and I are looking my wife's a psych major and a social worker, and we're like, "Hey, did you listen to Polly Vagel Man say this?" So, yeah. <laughs> do you actually call me that? Yeah, <laughs> I'll take it. All right. Oh, I was gonna say, I'm I'm trying to get him like a training for my Head Start cohort, like all of my employees where I work, exactly. but I'm just an admin, so I'm like pushing it up the chain of command. Like, you need to get this guy to give us a training. If we maybe if you call me Polly Vagel Man, that'll be like, oh, really? That would be a good shorthand. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get you. Gotta get your brand. You need a cape. Yeah. Uh, Apparently, I do. It's the perfect demographic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll work on the cape. (laughs) The the glasses will have to count. This is part of my brand. My glasses here. I love the (laughs) ideas. Hey, I really hope you enjoyed that discussion. Again, JustinLMFT.com. I have building safety anchors and Polybagel 101. I know we covered a lot. And it's pretty in-depth stuff. I mean, like, the topics are huge, and we kind of breeze through them. I'd love to know what you think. Feel free to reach out to me. You can email me, justinlmft at gmail.com, justinlmft at gmail.com, and let me know what you think. I have a feeling that people are going to to have an issue with the whole timeout and shame thing. I think it's an interesting topic, and I'm open to your thoughts on that. Feel free to reach out to me. Otherwise, thank you so much for uh, being a part of this. Bye. This is not therapy, by the way, not intended to be therapy or be a replacement for therapy. Please seek for help in your area if you need it. This is also not clinical consultation. Do not take this as legal advice. Just read in the description. I have a disclaimer there as well.